Welcome everyone to the Design 101 podcast. My name is Amanda Gates and I own AB Home Interiors in Nashville, Tennessee. My goal with this podcast is to celebrate all the blessings that we receive through a well-designed home. I hope to introduce you to inspirational people, teach you new ways to live better, and empower you to design your environment more mindfully. There are many ways to achieve balance and harmony in our lives, but it all starts at home. Join me each month as I journey into the depths of domestic and holistic enlightenment. Welcome everyone to the Design 101 podcast. I'm your host Amanda and today's guest is Lori May. Lori is an interior designer from Atlanta, Georgia, whom I recently met at the Room Service Atlanta event. If you follow my Facebook page, you probably saw some photos. Lori and I have actually been following each other's blogs. We've spoken a couple of times on Twitter, but we'd never had the opportunity to meet. One thing that I love about social media is being able to meet up with friends that really have been talking for, Lori and I have probably been talking for a couple of years now. So it was fabulous to finally meet her. Lori got her start working as a buyer for several well-known retailers, including the Bombay Company. Remember them? I used to love shopping with them. Traveling the world for these retailers, she developed many home accessory lines and furniture lines, and it allowed her to sharpen her eye for detail, which honestly is all about interior design. If it's not in the details, then it's not design. Recently, she teamed up with Room Service Atlanta, which is where I got to meet her at the charity event down, uh, I think it was in June that I was down there. And they're an organization that helps create inspiring interiors for the less fortunate. Her spot garnered her a position on Design Wars of HDTV. And if you go on our website, you can see all the beautiful designs that she's done. It's no question that Lori has a terrific eye for design. Join me as I sit down with Lori today to get a little bit more about her background as a buyer, her background as a designer, and the things that she really enjoys about the industry, the changing industry as it is with the new economy, and what I really want to know is what interior design is like in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey Lori, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting. Uh, I explained a little bit in the intro, just a little bit about your career path. Um, You're an interior designer now, but just give us a little bit of background of who you are and um, what really drew you to interior design. Well, my early career was spent in the corporate world on the retail side. So I designed product. I was a buyer. um, I traveled all over the world, which was allowed me to curate these fabulous this fabulous sense of design that I always had, but didn't quite know what I wanted to do with it. So I was kind of funneled into the business world and enjoyed that for a long time. But the travel got to be a little much in the corporate world, to be honest, didn't fit me very well as a person. And so design was something I've always done. I've done it for family. I've done it for friends. I've done it for myself. It was always something until, and one day I realized, why am I not doing this? Why is this, this is what I love to do. And it just took several years for me to figure out what is it that I really want to do. And interior design was it. Um, It was an easy transition for me. I missed the travel a little bit, but it's easier to be home right now because I have two daughters who are elementary school age, 10 and 7. So it's easy for me to be home. My husband still travels extensively. And so for me, this was a great transition. And it's it's been a good good transition for me as well. It's been a 
trying experience sometimes, learning how to do this successfully, the business side of it, not the design side, but that's my challenge is how to figure out how to do this business as a businesswoman and a brand builder and not just somebody out there throwing pretty rooms out for someone to love or not. It's a whole business for me, not just the interior design. Well, and I think that's something that a lot of people need to understand is that, you know, it's not a hobby. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people think that we do this for kicks and giggles, and it is a business. It's not a charity. Exactly. Exactly. And that, I think, is the toughest thing for a lot of people out there. And I'm going to say women because it primarily is harder, I think, for women to wrap our brains around this than it is for men. It is a business. And for I would honestly say for a year and a half for me, it was a very lucrative hobby, to be honest. I think that there's been a, a nice shift for me when I realized I, I want to do this for a living. I don't want to do this as a hobby. But sometimes it's a very fine line between the two. And you have to realize, okay, what are my goals? Who do I want to be working with? I don't want to be taking every single job that comes my way. I want to do this the way I want to do it. And I want to build it larger than just a design project. I want it to be something more than that about my brand, not just my one business side. There are several sides of business in this field. So when you started out in the corporate field, how old were you approximately? Early 20s? Right out of college. Right out of college. So mm -hmm. had you always wanted to be a buyer and, and go into that, or how did you get drawn to that? I have been, when I was in college, I worked in retail. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I, I had a very, I was very personable, so the field, the field fit me well, and that's how I worked my way through college. I was an assistant manager of a retail store when I graduated and stayed in that field until what was the next step for me, and there was a retailer in Nashville actually where I lived and that was a great way for me to get my foot into the corporate world I didn't have a good plan I wasn't one of those people who went to college and said I'm gonna be a doctor I'm gonna be a lawyer I didn't have that kind of forethought and vision at that point in my life and so I fell into retail buying almost by accident but it was a nice transition from where I had been and the best thing that ever happened to me was moving on to the Bombay Company, where I got to really, really immerse myself into product design and travel and building a business based on the product line that I was purchasing at the time. So it really expanded my reach as far as I didn't just go through a catalog and pick items that I wanted to put in the store. I developed lines to put into my category in the store. That's fantastic. So when you get to that point and you start learning that knowledge, how have you been able to take that experience and incorporate it? Because how long have you been doing, when did you decide to transfer or trans, uh, transition into interior design? Almost four years ago. So how have you been able to take that experience from product design and working on that end of it into mm -hmm. your design business? It was in a couple of different stages. So I left the corporate world and went into contract, contract work. So I was actually developing product for factories overseas to make the product and then have it sold back into the U.S., the Middle East, um, and Europe. And so that was my first taste of owning my own business, per se, and I loved it. I loved the freedom. I loved to be able to um, work when I wanted to work. That was the hard thing for me with corporate was I was held to be there at 745. You can't leave until it's done. 
we were on three week trips overseas. It was just, it was very regimented. And that was the part that I really didn't like. Plus all everyone else's opinions about what I was doing versus what I thought was right. Um, which I guess is the case with everybody, but that was a struggle for me. So when I left corporate, I got to do what I wanted to do. After the economy downturn in 2008 or so, 2007, my business dried up. There just wasn't a lot of product development going on. And that was my transition into, okay, what's next for me? And interior design was it. And I feel like all that product knowledge and all of, we put together um, as a buying unit at the Bombay company, we had to put together stories. We didn't just, you had to work with the furniture buyer, you had to work with the um, window treatment people. You had to work with everyone to create stories, basically rooms that we would sell to our clients who would walk into the stores. And so that allowed me to get much more clear on what my, my style was, what my taste level was, and what I wanted to put out there under the Lori May Interiors name. Well, and what fantastic knowledge, um, because that's really what we have to do as designers when we're working with a client and they're telling us what it is that they want to achieve in their home, that's what we have to do is we have to tell a story because mm-hmm. we may be able to visualize it in our heads and we can see it to the down to the little accessory, mm-hmm. but they can't. That, that's why they're hiring us because they can't quite achieve um, that outstanding result. Mm-hmm. So they come to us and we have these, you know, imaginations that just soar and we can do this and put this. And so if you can't, if you don't have that ability to tell the story, then you're not really able to explain to them uh, in words that they can understand what the end result's going to look like. That's absolutely true. And we had to tell our story to the board, you know, someone who, <laughs> a group of people who really didn't care about (laughs) what we were doing. They just wanted to make sure it was profitable, but we still had to tell those stories. And that was excellent training for me to tell someone who at least cares now what their home looks like. And you're right. My, our job is very educational based. We, we educate them on budgets. We educate them on product. We educate them on the overall look and we educate them on how to take care of everything when we're done. So it is, that's one of the things that I love the most about what I do is educating my clients on how to get from beginning to the end of a process. And it's what a very important thing. What would you say, the, the, the one benefit, every creative person, interior designer, graphic designer, every person that I talk to that becomes an entrepreneur, the, the main reason that they do it is because they want the freedom um, and they're tired of the corporate world. They're, they're tired of the grind. Mm-hmm. What are some of the pros and cons of being your own boss and being an entrepreneur? What, what, now, because you can definitely uh, create a pro and con since you're, you're now coming from both worlds. Sure. I mean, the pros are exactly what you just said. The ability to have the freedom to do what you want to do creatively within your time, what you want to do with your time. If I want to, you know, take off the afternoon, I can um, if I plan that into my schedule. There's the con. I am responsible for my schedule. I have to make sure things get done. I can't just take off the afternoon just because I feel like it. It doesn't work that way. So there's pros to having that kind of freedom and being able to create interiors that I want to create, but there's cons because I'm responsible for the good and the bad. And I think that's something that's really important. You know, I've now worked for myself for 10 years. And when people find out that I work for myself, it's, they, they really 
people who first meet me are like, oh, that must be so wonderful to be your own boss, to make your own mm -hmm. schedule. And they always look at the good side. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of cons that come with it. There, you know, you, yes, you get to make your own schedule, but you're responsible for your own fate. You mm -hmm. have to bring that money in and you've got to make sure that your clients are happy and that you're really running a business and not a hobby. Right. And there's no one else to pick up the slack. It's all on you. So if you've got staff you have to pay, if you've got, you know, you've got insurance, you've got bill, you've got all of these things. It is completely on you as the creative of your company to make sure that the business side of your business happens. And that's where I think a lot of interior designers get into a real fix because they're phenomenal creatives, but their business side of their business is not very well developed. So they're not educated enough on the business aspect of running their own company. Well, and I think that's our biggest, like you said, our, our downfall because we are right-brained, we are creative, and we're terrific at what we do. But when it comes to the business side of it, it's like we completely fall flat. You have to bring in somebody to really help you with the skill set that you don't have so that it doesn't become a hobby. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And you have to realize that sometimes that person's not you. Sometimes you either have to bring in help that you've hired or you have to get a, a better education yourself, just as we try to educate our clients. We have to have an education on certain things that we could be doing better. And how do we make billable hours the bulk of our calendar instead of the least part of our calendar? Well, and I think that's the biggest challenge. Uh, you and I were just talking about this before we um, went on to the show, that um, I would that's where I'm at where I want to stop working in the business and I want to work on the business and you have to be able to know when it's time to delegate those tasks that are not producing an income mm -hmm. I think we get so caught up in oh I can do that and I can sure. take care of that and we don't know how to say no and so we end up you know I've done it myself where I will work all day or at least I'm telling myself that I'm working and all I'm doing is a bunch of um, $10 an hour tasks. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I haven't worked on a project or done anything. So I end up having to stay up till midnight, one o'clock in the morning to get those sure. things done. Mm -hmm. I think the other key is that a lot of times you need to put these processes in place before you need them. Yeah. You need to be one step ahead of hiring that bookkeeper or one step ahead of hiring, you know, whoever it is that you need. And I, and I can say this because you and I just had this conversation of me saying, well, I'm not quite sure I'm ready. I'm absolutely neat. I need it. I'm just not quite ready. But right. we need to make ourselves ready because then when everything hits the fan, it's, it's go time. And right. have someone there to help you pick up the slack. Well, Whether and you know, have to be able or, to admit mm -hmm. that there are things that we're just not good at. And I think that uh, especially as business owners, we tell ourselves, oh, well, we're saving money. We're saving mm -hmm. money. We can do it ourselves. We have time. But you know, the quality of your life, if you're working six, seven days a week and you're running yourself ragged, like I know, yeah, I can do my bookkeeping. Um, I've done it for enough years now to where I can do it. But like my bookkeeper will come in and she can do what takes me three hours. She can mm -hmm. usually do it in 45 minutes to an hour. So you compare those two costs and think how much is your three hours worth versus paying her. Right. She's 30 bucks an hour. And in right. 30 bucks, I can get it done versus eating up three hours of my time when I could be working on a project or, you know, writing a terrific blog post or, you know, doing something that's really benefiting the company. 
Sure. Absolutely. So those are the those are the challenges of being an entrepreneur is not getting caught up in the busy work and not mm-hmm. getting caught up in the nonsense. You have to time manage. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. So did you ever think this is for myself? Mm-hmm. If you had asked me when I was 20, if I would be a business owner, I probably would have said heck no. In fact, I remember in my early 20s, one of the very first design firms that I worked for, I thought, heck no, I don't ever want to do this. I don't want to be responsible for employees and insurance and overhead. I will never do this. And here I've been doing it for 10 years. Did you ever think that you would be your own entrepreneur? I can honestly say that this was what I always wanted to do, but I never considered the business aspect. I never, I never thought about the insurance and the employees and all of the stuff that comes along that's the hard part for us. I just wanted the ideal. I wanted, and honestly, for a long time, I wanted a shop because that was where I came from. In my retail background, that's, that's obviously, I could, I could do it better. I could make it beautiful. I could do it so much differently than the corporations that I worked for in that small, perfect little bungalow that I would find somewhere and make this beautiful home decor shop. Um, so that was always on my radar. The way it has ended up may not have been, but... I've always wanted to do something on my own. Awesome. Well, good for you for following your dreams. I try. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like you. I mean, I went to school. I was originally pre-med. And um, I think that I went into that field because I thought that, you know, people would always be sick. And it was something where I could always make an income. It would be consistent. But I didn't really put that much thought into it. I just kind of thought, well, it will pay my bills. Mm-hmm. But when I graduated, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in uh, bioscience and uh, with a minor in chemistry. And I thought, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? I was working working at a uh, surgical center at the time, and it was like the ideal situation. It was Monday through Fridays, no weekends, no one call. And I was guaranteed a position there. And I was working at the time as a CNA, and I thought good Lord, this is as good as it's going to get. And everybody is like fighting to work here and I've got a guaranteed position and this is not what I want. Right. And I didn't have a life path or a plan. I just kind of fell into interior design. Um, I loved it. It really uh, was perfect for me because I was always exponentially creative. Mm -hmm. Um, But the entrepreneur side of it really did scare me. I, I do know that the idea of having employees and Um, The business side of it, I had no clue. Like, I knew that there would be employees and insurance and stuff, but I didn't really know how much there was to it until I got into it. That's probably a good thing. (laughs) I think it is because if I had really known what it entailed, I probably wouldn't have done it. I just kind of took the leap. And a lot of designers that I talk to, they do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a lot to it. And I think that that's important for consumers to know is that a lot of times we do our best to really bring value to them and really offer the the most incredible design, but also provide great customer service and great trades. And we do everything that we can to make the experience just amazing for them. Mm -hmm. But on the back end of it, there are so much taxes and insurance and things that we have to hold um, to be a professional business. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's just so much to the cost of doing business that you don't know until you get into it. 
That's why it's so important to know your own value and to command the fees that you should and have that ideal client so that you can support that kind of business without having to take every single job that that knocks on the door. Yeah, and I think that is important. I think that's important, too, for the consumer to understand that not every designer is an ideal fit for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's important that the designer does know uh, what is a good fit and what is a good client for them so that both have a great experience with the project because at the end, um, the ideal situation is, is that the designer is, you know, happy with the result and so is the client, that it's a great experience all around. Oh, exactly. And then that just benefits you more because they're going to refer you to someone else and you've already vetted one client. So hopefully if they're referring you, you've got another potentially good client as well without having to do however many times you have to touch. I forget how many times you have to touch someone to get a new client versus a referral. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's vitally important that our customer service level be as high as it can be so that we can appeal to that client that we want. Yeah. And I think it's important too. um, like I just had to, I just turned down a, a client that had called me, but I knew that she wasn't a good fit for me. And I think that she was a little bit upset that, you know, I wasn't going to work with her, but mm-hmm. I think ultimately, um, and we'll, we'll get to talking about this in a minute, uh, education, you know, I'm starting to see a, a huge trend. I've been doing it for about three years now, but I'm starting to see a huge trend with designers really adding value to their companies and what they offer by getting extended education. Mm-hmm. And I'm working, my coach that I'm working with now, um, her name is Gail and her best advice is to me, I was telling her, gosh, sometimes I feel like I should have gone to business school because mm-hmm. like Toby Fairley's done it. Martha O'Hara's right. done it. Like all these big design firms, the main designer has a master's in business or a bachelor's in business or finance. Mm-hmm. And so does Gail. And so I was thinking, gosh, maybe I should go back to school and, and get a higher education in business. And Gail said to me, you know what? The best education that I ever got is that every year I work with a coach or I get continuing education that is specific to the design field. And uh-huh. she said, that's a better education than you'll ever get in college. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, that's fantastic because I'm starting to see a huge trend where a lot of designers are now doing programs like um, Toby Fairley's Designer MBA, mm-hmm. um, all the different design camps, the different seminars that are going on um, so that we do get better educated because that benefits the client. That gives them a designer that's fully focused on their project. Um, they're able to fully focus on customer service. Um, they have the time to create spreadsheets and, and get the jobs done on time, mm-hmm. uh, work with the best trades. I mean, there's incredible value to that. There isn't. It still goes back to that, what we were talking about before with the hobby versus the business. Doing those extra education, coaching, all of these things that we do differentiates us from the hobby decorator. And that's very important because there is a place for those people. There is a client for them. There is a, there's definitely a place for them. It's not the place I want to be. And so it's not the place you want to be. It's not the place that, that where our clients are. So this is a good thing in the sense that it does take different levels of our industry and segment them out. And we rise to the top by being able to educate our clients on what type of customer service they should expect, 
what type of budgets they should expect because they a lot of times they don't know. I know that sometimes they just refuse to tell you, but many times they just don't know. So this extra education that we get on our own business helps us parlay that into what we can teach our clients as well. Yeah, I agree with that. So I know that uh, I've been this perpetual learner for the last three years and, and really trying to up my ante with providing my uh, client with the ultimate design experience and customer service. You just got done uh, with the Toby Fairley MBA course. Tell us a little bit about it. How did that experience change you? It's it's very cliche, and I had heard people say this before, but it was, um, as far as my business goes, life-changing for me. And, and, I, and I do preface that with it's incredibly cliche to say that, but it put me on the right track of moving from what was a successful hobby into what now is a brand building successful business. And the, the biggest thing, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me with MBA was that it's not just about my everyday clients. What else can I do to create revenue streams that aren't strictly based on working in an interior design project? And that is a, that's a huge relief when we're talking about running these businesses and having to bring a certain amount of money in every month and having to work for us and for others as far as our families go. Having those different revenue streams are crucial because the industry's changed so much over the past literally just five years in the sense that all your clients can go online, see just about everything you can see. They can go out and they can buy just about anything you can. It's not exclusive. Obviously, there's still trade in there, but they're much more educated as far as the product goes. So we have to expand our knowledge. We have to expand our offerings. And that's what Toby talks about a great deal is what else can you do? What other ways can you reach those little fingers of your business out and touch other places that can create revenue streams? And how do you think that from a business standpoint, the Lori May brand, let's say in June when I talked with you mm -hmm. at uh, Mitchell Gold versus Lori May Interiors now, what has it done for your, for your vision and your goals? I value my business much, much more than I did before. I have a lot more confidence. I've done a lot of, there's a lot of homework involved once you've gone to MBA. There's a lot of figuring out who am I? What do I want this business to be? Um, what is it now and what do, I, what do I want it to be in the future? Who's my ideal client? All those classic business things that we don't, as entrepreneurs, that we don't necessarily take and do the homework ahead of time. And she forces you to do the homework so that you can put goals out there. And not just the goals, you have to have a roadmap of how am I going to get there? And I can honestly say from July when I went to MBA to now, my business is completely different in the sense that I am so serious about it. I have, as Toby would say, I have skin in the game um, in the sense that I would used to money that came in just went into my account. You know, it just went into my account. I wasn't as, I wasn't as accountable as I should have been for the funds. Now I know every dollar that goes in, every dollar that goes out, where it's going. And that sounds like a simple thing, but I would guarantee you that many people listening to this do the same exact thing. They don't really know where the money is. 
That's one aspect that I learned from MBA. The second thing was just to value myself and my creative ability and take ownership for the fact that I'm good at this and I do a good job and people should pay me to do that job. And I wasn't charging enough. I wasn't charging enough hours for a project. It, it, there's just so many things. It could This whole podcast could be one topic on just MBA. Um, but it's, it changed my seriousness, how serious I was about this business in itself. And it gave me training to realize, okay, if I do A, B, and C, then I'm prepared to do C, D, and E. So it's that roadmap to go from where I was to where I am now. And then there's a whole other space that I want to get to over the next six months to a year. See, and I think that's fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm taking it, uh, in November and actually Lori was the, 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 deciding factor. I had been wanting to do the course for about two years now and I kept putting it off and putting it off and um, you and four other designers that I've spoken with have just spoken so highly of the course and I'm like all right I'm taking this course because I've always been serious about my business and um, Toby actually was the one that recommended to me my first business coach that I ever worked with which was Mary Naxted. Mm -hmm. She's out in New York and she's written several uh, textbooks for actual design schools um, and several design books just for common knowledge and running a business and she was tremendously helpful and she was the one that really started me on my path of this is a business and mm -hmm. it's so funny because that's the biggest I would say uh, factor or issue with our trade is value Absolutely. I think that all of us underestimate our value that we bring to the table, especially the ones that are good. Um, and I think, you know, I, I was thinking about this as I was starting to get clear on my goals, was that I feel you hear so many times from potential clients or other people, oh my gosh, you charge so much, or oh gosh, it must be so fun what you do. And just the little things that people say to you, um, I think make you question the way you do business mm -hmm. and as women we're people pleasers True. and as creatives we want those people to be happy we want the results to be amazing and, and we want to transform their lives and make them have this outstanding result and I think we sacrifice our value and this this really upsets me because I feel like the client gets an amazing design the vendors and the, the big box stores get their products purchased and sold. Everybody's profiting and making something mm -hmm. from the deal, except for the one who's doing all the work. Right. Right. So I think that's what I'm most excited about is I've worked with these different coaches over the years. Um, just the value that you feel in yourself and knowing that what you bring to the table. When I moved my office, um, I'm now in my new space. But I dealt with Comcast for eight freaking weeks to get my phone set up. I was without phones for eight weeks. Uh-huh. And it was maddening because I would call the customer service line and the person would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Let's see what we can do. And then I would hang up the phone. Nothing would have been done. Then right. I would call up again. I would get somebody entirely different. And so... They didn't know what was going on. There were no notes in the system. Nothing was happening. And it was like, okay. Then the third time, you know, my frustration level is just increasing after each person that I talk to. And none of them know what's going on because there are no notes in the system. 
Mm -hmm. Then I take to Twitter, which I feel is so distasteful. Mm -hmm. Like that is not me. That's not how I run my business. But I finally, I was like, okay, it's been four and a half weeks and I still have no phones. Mm -hmm. So people who are calling my phone system, it says this phone number's now been disconnected. So I look like I've gone out of business and they don't right. seem to understand this. So then I take to Twitter and then the Twitter people are trying to set up appointments. I ended up having three different technicians come out to my house and all three technicians were either not able to perform the work, not able to hook them up, or there was an issue. Oh my goodness. So my, again, my frustration level is going up and up and up and I'm thinking, this is a communications leader. They are the world provider of communications in our mm -hmm. country. And it's corporate America. And they're not fixing the problem. And they're also not working with me in my frustration level. Nor are they helping in the idea of my opinion towards Comcast. Sure. I'm probably going to get hate mail now from this <laughs> podcast from somebody who's <laughs> listening from Comcast. So... The thing is, is that as I'm going through this experience, I'm thinking about how I run my company and how a lot of designers run their company um, so professionally. Mm -hmm. um, the way that they handle projects and project management and the level of customer service that they do, that has value. And I think that, especially with so many large companies now that don't have that, I think that our clients need to appreciate the fact that we do have spreadsheets and we create timelines for their jobs and that we are checking on them. Like my, uh, with my clients, I update them once a week on what's going on with their project. There are of a course. lot of firms that won't do that. There's a lot of companies that won't do that. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine what that does to the client? They're, they've given you a, a large sum of money, they've sent you on your way, and then there's nothing. It's yeah. crickets for the next six weeks. Mary used to imagine. call that the twilight zone. Yes. So here you've handed me a $50,000 check mm -hmm. to redo your living room, and you haven't heard from me in four weeks. Mm -hmm. That's not good business. Right, right. And there's value to that. You know, that's why I have a staff that helps me put that together and to provide you that extra customer service. Mm-hmm. So that's good. So what other things did you learn? What, what are some new things that you've started doing in your business that you didn't used to do? I've started, um, one of the things, and I, I think this is common, is, you know, you walk into a client meeting, or even if it's a phone screen, and that, that is one of the things, too, that I do. I, I'm much more efficient at screening my clients now, so that you don't just show up and realize, ah, this is not the, my ideal client. And that was the case before for me, was the phone ring, sure, let's set up a meeting, I would go. And it wasn't worth my time. And it wasn't worth their time, because it's not just about me. It's also about them, and we were not a good fit. So now one of the things that I'm, I'm very diligent about is phone screening and trying to get as much information as possible before I actually make a, an in-home visit. And the second thing that I've started doing is I actually try to build a budget for my client. So I give them a, a sheet that says, okay, here's my average master bedroom that I, that I would build for you. Here's my average family room. Those kind of things, because you will oftentimes go in and you'll say, okay, how, you know, you're, you're thinking about your investment amount. Have you talked to, you know, the family? Has everybody gotten together and decided how much we're going to spend? No. And either they don't want to tell you because they're afraid you're going to spend all of their money, or 
they just really don't know. And I, I venture to say that a lot of them just really don't know. So I've put together these sample um, budgets so that I can send to them before I even go to their home and say, okay, for me, for Lori May Interiors, this is what I do. This is the budget I put together because I don't necessarily want to be working on projects for a lot less than that. And that way we're very clear before I ever come out as to what we need to be do doing. I know that you know, many of us have had the process where we go out, we send out a proposal, and our fee was probably what the client was thinking of as their budget. And that was a waste of everyone's time to do that. So now I don't have that worry any longer. I can actually go out, and it's not perfect in the sense that you don't know how much they want to spend. So it may be beyond what I've put out there, but at least they have an entry point idea of what it would take. And we cut through all of the kind of back and forth on, well, I don't want to tell you, but I should tell you. And it's just this, it's a business. It's a business. There is a dollar amount, no matter what. And if you don't even know, there is a dollar amount that you know you have to spend. And we have to educate them on the fact that it doesn't matter to me what your dollar amount is. We'll either work with it or we won't. And it's good for both of us to find that out because there's somebody else that probably will do it for that. But it may well, not and be. It's, it's really important, and I agree. I think that people are always afraid to tell us what the budget is because they're afraid that we're going to spend the amount. And we will. That's our Absolutely. job. <laughs> we are going to do a better job with that money, and we are going to save them time. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do it right the first time. Um, and allow them to live in that space sooner rather than later and start enjoying it. Um, so that the, and I agree that every client does that. They don't want to share their budget, but we have to have a starting point. We have to know what we're working with. Mm -hmm. Um, it baffles me that clients don't like if they need a new set of tires on their car, they research the paper and look online and they start getting an idea of what things cost. And for some reason, people don't do that with homes. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have to know as designers what the budget is because we need to know where to shop and what to look for. Exactly. So if you're telling me that you're going to redo a living room and I don't know what your budget is, I'm going to go to XYZ lines that has XYZ pricing. And maybe I'm looking at a $3,000 sofa mm -hmm. and your budget should be $1,500. Mm -hmm. So now I've just wasted three hours looking at three or four different catalogs of sofas, mm -hmm. three or four different hangings of fabrics or potentially more. I'm looking at finish options. I'm looking at trim options. I'm looking at the stuffing that goes inside of the sofa. Mm -hmm. And then I go to you and I say, look at this beautiful $3,000 sofa. And you come back and say, oh, my God, I can't spend that. Right. So that's why we need to know what the budget is. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the education piece of this. And my goal is to try to give them as much education before I actually have to make a visit to their home so that we all know where we stand. And I think that's great. That way we're very clear because I walk into my very first my very first consultation with someone, the very first thing we do is sit down and go through the design process. Do we look at what would I prefer looking at their beautiful home or thinking about what I would like to do in their home? Of course I would. But they have to know that I'm sitting down as a businesswoman saying, okay, here's how this works. Here's how the process works. And we go through that very quickly. 
And then we move on to the things that they want to talk about, which is the, the pretty things and what they'd like to have. But we have to have the business conversation first. And I always say, this is a business. You're not going to hurt my feelings by turning me down. You're not going to hurt my feelings by telling me you don't like something. The only way this works is if we're honest with each other and transparent. Yeah, I agree with that. And you have to because that's where I know that when I first started my company, I think I was fearful to really be honest with people for either hurting their feelings or losing <laughs> the job or, you know, whatever the emotions are. And then you would be halfway through a project and then those things weren't discussed. And then the surprises pop up and then everybody's upset. True. And that's not how you want one to run your business, but you also don't want that experience for the client. You want them to have fun and really enjoy the process and to get an amazing room, no matter what the cost is, but you want them to feel happy and joyful and wowed by the room or the result that they get. Mm -hmm. And have no buyer's remorse. Exactly. You know, just be, and I, I do think that staying in touch with them that constant contact, a little note here and there during the process. This is a long process. It's not done in a month. It yeah. takes some time. And so staying in touch with them and creating that human element to it helps us immensely. That's where as women we benefit because we are more um, touchy-feely in that aspect. Yeah. But we have to learn to be a little more like men on the business side of it and make it a bit more cut and dry. Do you charge that amount? Yes, I do. And leave it at that. There's no, so, you don't have to reason it out. Have you changed, you, you said that you did change your pricing structure mm -hmm. um, as you've gotten more educated. Do you work primarily by a flat fee now? I do. I do. And how have you seen that as being a big shift or a big change in your business? It, it cuts down on the questions as far as I send a proposal out and um, generally you get questions back, obviously, and that's great. You want that, that interaction. And occasionally there would be the question of, well, we spent, you know, we spent an hour and a half at my home during the consultation. Do you really need this many more hours to do the work when I was still billing it hourly? Do we really need this many more hours? And I found that question to be, <sighs> It just didn't need to happen. It didn't, they didn't need to worry about how many hours I was spending doing this, that, or the other. They just needed to know how much it was going to cost. And it, got, it made the client get all up into the hours instead of the amount. And so when I cut that out and I stopped worrying about, okay, in phase one we're spending 20 hours and phase two we're spending 10, and, and I listed out in the proposal, here's how we're spending our time I just gave them the amount and it took that question out of the picture. They might question the fee, although they very rarely do. It's usually just they're going to go with it or they're not. And that was already ingrained in them beforehand. So now I don't have to answer the little tedious questions of, okay, what will you be doing in hour nine? Right. It's, it's just much more cut and dry. And it also, how often do you come into a situation where you are pricing out like that? Like you, your tire example. They don't let you pay for how many hours they're working. They're, that's what you pay. Right. Well, so, I think that it's nice to have a cap or a ceiling. Yes. So that they know exactly what they're getting into. There's no surprises. Mm -hmm. And like you, you know, I, I'm now doing flat fees and not hourly. But I think that... Um, 
it takes a lot of time to do oh, yes. what we do. There's, you know, I don't think people realize how much time it takes running all over town to find things and to source things and to review and research things and then, you know, um, price things, budget things and put it all together and then procurement. It mm -hmm. takes so much time to do those things. And so I think when you're charging by the hour, you end up not fully charging for what you're worth. You you might spend a hundred hours on a project and you might only bill for 65 or 70. Definitely. Yeah. It's impossible for us to explain to them every single aspect of what we do. They have to, at some point, trust us to do what they've hired us to do. I had, when I opened up my studio, one of my previous clients had come to work for me. She was my office manager and um, I had helped her completely design, build a house from the ground up. And when she started working for me, that was the first thing that she said is she said, oh my God, I had absolutely no idea. Mm -hmm. She's like, I thought this was a black and white business. There are so mm -hmm. many gray areas and I did not realize how much time it takes to order a sofa and a couple chairs or sure. how much time it takes to take a project from, you know, a, B, C to D and to make it happen. Like there are so many moving parts to what you do and project management to what you do. And mm -hmm. that's what she told me is that you were worth every penny because I had no idea that you did this. Right. You made the experience flow from point A to point B and got everything installed. And I had no idea that you did all this. Mm -hmm. so and I that think is, that that's important. It is. And that, that again goes back to that education. We do have to let them know what we are doing. But letting them know hour by hour, not necessary. Yeah. Not well, and I think that the flat fee is great. One, because it does put a ceiling on it. But I think that clients need to get a better appreciation for not only our creativity, but the value that we bring with, like I've been doing this for 13 years. You've mm -hmm. been doing this for, I know you've had your business for four, but you've been in the business for 15, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, we build up a Rolodex of the right people. We yes. build up a Rolodex of relationships that make shit happen for them. Mm -hmm. There's value in that. They don't have to pick up the phone and pick a random person that may or may not want, that they may not want in their home. Mm -hmm. They don't have to pick a random person that may or may not do a great job on their upholstery or refinishing their floors or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. um, and we've also got great relationships where I've been able to, uh, like my contractor, for instance, I've got relationships with my people to where I can literally call them off of another job because I'm in a rut because I've got to get something done for a client. I can call in those favors and get a French door put in or mm -hmm. get molding put up before their party. Exactly. They're not going to be able to get that done with some random phone call out of the phone book. Right. Or right. Off of Google, I should say the phone book doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> some of my clients still use the phone book, but yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. So, I think that all the way around, um, it makes for a better project for the designer because they're happier with mm -hmm. the project because they're getting paid what they're worth. Um, they're, I've, I feel like since I've changed to a flat fee, I feel like I'm a lot more creative because I'm not focusing on the hours. I'm focusing yeah. on the project. Yes, and exactly. I feel like the client is happier because the experience is better and they're not focusing on the tedious details of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. They're just focusing mm -hmm. on the result. Mm -hmm. And as 
long as you keep that conversation and that communication open, they're good anyway. You know, they feel like something's happening. And you're right. They're not worried about, oh, let me, can I get my bill for your hours this week? I've actually had clients say that. Well, no, <laughs> because I don't, if I take the time to do that right now, then that's taking more time that I need to be doing to work on your project. So it just, it, it just frees you up. That's a great way of saying it. It just really frees you up to not be concerned about such, such detail. So in Atlanta, I, I love going down to Atlanta because I love the interiors and the design down there. What is a realistic budget uh, for, let's say, a living room? That is such a hard question, I would say. I, I'm in the sub suburbs of Atlanta. So I think that when you're in the city proper, the budgets vary wildly. When you get to the area where I am, I have a, a unique niche, I think, in, the, in my area because most of the designers in this area work on that very, very traditional, southern traditional style. And there's definitely a place for that here. For me, I work on a very, very clean traditional style. I like to infuse some modern in there. I like to use a lot of graphics, um, a lot of texture, things like that. So my niche is being able to provide the, the families and, and homeowners in this area with something they would have to hire someone out of Atlanta to do. And so the budget for my rooms probably end up being somewhere around $35,000 for a living room. And whereas in Atlanta, that would probably cost you 50, Yeah, you know, because the area and I, but it has worked so well for me because I'm providing something that no other designer in the area offers. So it works well. Well, and I think that's really important because a lot of with the DIY craze and with all mm -hmm. the blogs that are out there, everybody thinks that they can build something from Ikea furniture and, and HGTV, you know, oh, well, we can do this for a thousand dollars. And sure. there's so many trades and things that are involved that they're not showing on the show. Mm -hmm. Um or the labor and effort into taking that Ikea shelf and making it look like a Dorothy Draper chest of drawers. Sure. Um, I think that consumers are really misinformed on the budgets that are necessary to redo a room the way that it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, I just had this happen with a client where she hired me to put together, basically um, I do a, a thing uh, where I put together a conceptual board and I basically mm -hmm put together the room, put together everything that they need for the room, give them ideas on scale and, and options of sizes and things like that. And I give them a list of places to shop to get those things. That way they can do it themselves. They get sure. my expertise, but it's, you know, it gives them the, the value of being able to do it themselves. So she hires me to do this. I put together the concept. I, I give her everything that she needs. I hand it off to her. Didn't hear from her for like three months. She calls me up and she's like, I actually did a blog post on it, too. She's mm -hmm. like, I'm not sure what it is, but it just doesn't look right. <laughs> like, the concept that you gave me looks awesome. But mm -hmm. I look at the concept, and I look at the room, and it just, something's missing. And so I went out there, and she was right. It just, like, the rug that I had specked out, she picked one that was really super dark. I had picked out, a like, a Jonathan Adler-style one that was real bright. Uh -huh. And she picked out this Karistan one that was dark, dark, dark brown. I mean, it was so dark. And her floors were dark brown. They were dark uh -huh. rustic wood. Mm -hmm. And then she picked out the wrong pillows, the wrong lamps. And I'm like, well, none of these items that you purchased are on the concept board. And she goes, yeah, but I got all those on sale. <laughs> 
And I thought, well, there's your problem. Right. You're looking at price before you're looking at the product. Mm-hmm. And I, I told her, I said, you can't do that. And she's like, well, can you fix it? Mm. I'm like, yeah, but we've got to scrap all this. Mm-hmm. So we ended up spending $10,000 to fix the room to get the right, right items. But now she has the room of her dreams. Now she loves oh. it. She's like, I should have just hired you in the first place, but I got caught up on the price because I didn't think it would really cost that. Mm-hmm. So by the time she got, uh, she got two Bernhardt sofas. I think her chair was from Taylor King. Uh-huh. Um, but all the items, I think by the time she was done with the room, I think it was about twenty-five or $30,000. And sure. I had originally told her that that's what it would cost to get everything. She thought I was crazy. Mm-hmm. She's like, there's no way. I can do this for ten mm-hmm. or 15000 Well, and that's why I do these sample budgets for people because I don't want to have experience where obviously this worked out well in the end, but a lot of times they just walk away frustrated. And that's not my goal. My goal is for you to be able to understand what this really costs. And that way you can make an educated decision on what you do next. Maybe you wait six months to a year. Till you build up that investment amount you want to spend in that room. But at least you have the information you need to make the decision. And I'm not wasting my time. Right. Well, and, and you're not wasting theirs. I think that... Exactly. Um, I think that... And that's something that I, I offer clients a lot of times is, you know, here's the plan, here's the budget. Um, you know, $15,000 isn't going to cover it. But let's revisit this maybe in a year from now when you can add maybe another ten or 15000 to this. And then let's do it right mm-hmm. the first time. Let's make the investment work the, the first time and, and buy quality pieces and pieces that you love so that every time you walk in this room, you're just blown away mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of that frustrating feeling of, ah, you know, like with this particular client, she was like, ah, I just walked in here and it just fell flat. And I just like my heart sank every time I saw mm-hmm. it. She's like, it just, it just didn't feel right, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really a great tool to educate them on numbers just so that they get comfortable with the idea of what it really costs to redo a room. Mhm. Exactly. It's it's vital. It's absolutely vital that they understand that process. So, what is your strongest suit as a designer? You said that you've got this niche of being able to bring Metro Atlanta to your area. Um, what do you absolutely love to do for clients? What's your favorite thing about being a designer? I love art and I love fabrics. So two of my, my starting points are generally those two points. I love um, original artwork. I have a very good relationship with a gallery here in Marietta called DK Gallery. And I, I absolutely love introducing my clients to original pieces by artists for this gallery's sake who are in the Southeast. And it means something to you because you love it. It's not just going to home goods and finding the right size piece and sticking it on the wall. This means something to you. Like your family photos mean something to you. So let's let's investigate it and let's try to figure out, you know, what do you love? Because it's a passion for me, I want it to be a passion for them. It's not always that way. Um, but sometimes it is and it's a it's just a thrilling thing for me to be able to work with someone who enjoys original artwork as much as I do the other nice thing about original artwork is I can go to Etsy I can find sketches I can find things at Scott's I can find things that mean it for example antique maps I had a client and we were doing his home office and he he loved maps and so I was able to find these very inexpensive maps at Scott's and have them framed beautifully and it was just it meant the world to him 
Um, no pun intended there. <laughs> so caught myself. Um, but you know, little things like that. So art is a passion of mine. Fabrics are a passion of mine because I love the texture that they add. How many times have you walked into somebody's home and there's no window treatments? And granted, there's a time and a place. I'm not, I am not a big goopy window treatment person. I like panels, but I love the softness that they give to a space. And that's something that can take them from the ordinary family room or living room to something incredibly unique that's their neighbors or anyone who will visit their house is that unique fabric that I can provide that they can't find somewhere else. Mm. And I'm with you that those are two of my, two of my very favorite things that, that I really like to talk with my clients about. Well, Lori, we are coming up on an hour. I can't believe it. Well, I I figured that we would chit chat this long because we always do. But if somebody is listening to this and is interested in working with you in the Atlanta area, how do they find you? They can go to lorimayinteriors.com, and that's probably the easiest way. All my information is there, and they can also reach me at lori at lorimayinteriors.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me on the show today. It was so awesome to catch up with you and just chit-chat a little bit about business and the, the design industry. Yes, thanks for having me. I really had a good time. All right, thanks. I guess the question bears asking, do you have skin in the game? Are you running a hobby or are you running a business? I think in the new landscape of business, it's more important than ever to be accountable, expand your offerings, and always add value for your clients and customers. How can you add more service or better service? What makes you unique? How can you better your business each year? These are questions that true entrepreneurs and business owners ask themselves. And by answering this question, really building a real business. And that can be life-changing. I want to thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Amanda, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. If you'd like more information on the show or have questions or comments, email me at info at You can also visit my blog, abhomeinteriors.com forward slash blog, or find me on Twitter at the Amanda Gates. Bye for now.